Very interesting things are found in the book of 3 John. And we find in it that after describing the spirit of a man named Diotrephes in verses 10, 9 and 10, John encourages his beloved Gaius to be careful about what it is that he imitates. And following upon the condemnation of Diotrephes and followed by the commendation of Demetrius, it is easy to infer that John was warning Gaius not to be like that man called Diotrephes, and he was encouraging him instead to be like the one named Demetrius. But the question before you and I tonight is why did John feel the need to exhort Gaius in this way? After all, haven't we seen that Gaius was a man whose soul was prosperous? Haven't we observed this man to be one who was walking in the truth? After all, wasn't he one that we can notice that he was commended for his hospitality? Wouldn't these make good characteristics? Wouldn't these be good characteristics for someone else to look to Gaius and emulate him? Why, certainly, that is the case. But perhaps this should tell us a little something about ourselves as imitators and about the need for everyone to have a good role model in their life that they can imitate. In this little sermon, Imitating the Good, I would like for us to reflect on the idea of being imitators. Let's first begin by this as understanding that we are natural imitators. It all begins when we're born into this world. Now pretty soon a baby is going to get old enough that they're going to be able to look to their parents and they're going to be able to see certain characteristics in their parents. They're going to trust in, in those parents as the parents were those that sustained them with food. The parents are the ones that give them shelter and security at night. It is the parents that work hard and provide for them and put clothes on their backs. So that's the very first influence that children have in their life, and that is simply their parents. Parents are the greatest and most influential influence that a child will have in their life. And I'll tell you something, if you've ever had a child or if you've ever witnessed the attitude of a child, if you've ever watched a child as they follow after mom and dad, you will notice they want to be just like them. I can see that in my children. For example, with Tanner, I can see that there are specific things that I say, certain mannerisms that I have, certain tastes that I have, and certain likes and hobbies and so on, and here it is, that little fella is following me, wanting to be like me, and he is imitating me in that. I find that that's exactly what little boys and little girls do as they look to their parents. They do so to emulate them as if there was some inordinate desire on their part to be just like them. But you know, when that happens for a little while, and I don't know just exactly if that will always continue, but this I do know. Sooner or later, something happens to that child. And when that child, when this certain thing happens to that child, all of a sudden, the parents are no longer the greatest influence in their life. Oh, they may respect their parents. 
They may love their parents and so on. They may never speak ill of them or they may never speak to them in a disrespectful tone or attitude, but something is changed. They no longer are wanting to emulate or imitate their parents any longer. Much like what Bob said with that commercial that he referred to, I've heard that commercial too, where it gives the testimony of these children. And they're interviewing these children, and these children are saying, you were a lousy parent because you checked up on me, you made me do this, you made me do that, and so on and so forth. And I like what Bob said because that's the entire point to that commercial where it says, I hated you but then said, thank you. What happens? What happens to the child when they no longer look to their parents as the greatest influence in their life? Well, those children become teenagers. That's what happens to them. When they become teenagers, things change. Their values change. And they look to somebody else to be the one that they want to emulate. And that is their peer groups, their peer groups, their heroes, all of their idols that they might look to. You know, this could be a childhood friend. This could be a fellow classmate. This could be a professional athlete. This could be some rock star somewhere. You see, within their peer groups, they look to their heroes and they want to be like those that are in the group. You know, we talk about peer pressure. Peer pressure is a serious thing. It is something that you and I need to be cognizant of that our young people are going against peer groups and are greatly pressured because of that. But you know what's very interesting about it, though? I will say this. When teenagers who will say, I want to be myself, I want to be who I am, and I want to make my own mark, many times teenagers say that, and listen, I'm not making fun of teenagers, because you know what, I used to be one, and said a lot of the same things too. It's just something that happens. All of a sudden, we don't look to the parents anymore, because our parents have lost their intellectual uh, uh, they've lost our, their intellectual patterns. They've lost their intellectual capacity. They no longer are intelligent enough to guide us. In fact, sometimes teenagers look to their parents and wonder just how it is that they're intelligent enough to walk around even uprightly. What has changed? What changes is in their peer groups, the pressures are so great and our young people are right in the very heart of peer groups being pressured to do things and make decisions that maybe they're not strong enough to make all on their own. Let me illustrate it this way. This actually happened. A psychologist uh, wanted to put together a case study. And the psychologist wanted to map the patterns about how people would respond to peer pressure within these groups. So what they did is they chose teenagers from early teens all the way until through high school. So I would imagine you're talking about 13 to 18 years old. You have specific groups that are within that age group. And what they did is they broke them down into 10 different groups. And this is what they did. 
In a room, there was a line drawn about that long. There was another line drawn about that long. And then there was a third line drawn about that long. Here the idea was, they were told when they come in, they're going to vote to see which one was the longest line. Very simple. You and I can look at that, and so long as we don't have any eye problems, we can see that the bottom line is, beyond a shadow of a doubt, the very longest line on there. Here's the problem. One student in there was not let in on some of the information that they were going to do. Nine of those children were taken aside by the psychologist, and she said this, I don't care what you think the answer is, when I tell you to vote on the longest line, I want you to vote for that one right there. I want you to vote for the second longest line that is there on that chart. And they broke them down into three different diagrams. Well, here it comes. The 10 students are sitting there. And all of a sudden, they ask which one the longest line is. When they pointed to this one, nine students raised their hand. Well, here's this other poor fellow. I've tried to put myself in his position. He knows that's not the longest line. He knows that answer is wrong. But nine vehemently raised their hand and with all assurance said, that's the longest one. So you know what he does? He starts looking around. The pressure gets greater. And before you can say, don't do it, there goes his hand. He raises his hand too, showing... He doesn't care if they all wear a dunce cap so long as they all wear it together. He is more concerned about what every person is doing in that peer group. And he is more concerned that, about not going against the norm or the standard of that group that he's willing to vote for the wrong answer. You might think that's a one-time thing. You might think that's only for young people. But this was done from 13 to 18. And get this. Of all the groups, 75% of them did it just like that. 75% chose rather to be popular than to be right. Oh, yes, indeed, peer pressures and peer groups are real in our life. They are influencing our children as they are in their teen years. What happens, though, when we get through our teenage years and we become a Christian? Then what? Are Christians imitating someone? I am convinced that the Christian will be influenced by or will try to imitate those men that are respected. And I might just say men or women makes no difference. Those Christians, those people that are respected. Many times those are looked upon with even more respect than is really due them in the Christian life. You know, it's a good thing when you imitate, and that's exactly what's found in this writing of our text. It is good to imitate those that are doing good, and it's not good to imitate those that are doing that which is not good. And so, if someone is trying to imitate a fellow Christian, it is only okay and it is only good if that person truly is good. If that person is really trying to do that which is right. For example, I don't care if it's one of the most respected preachers in our whole brotherhood. 
I don't care if it is one of the most respected elders of a congregation. It doesn't make any difference if it's a respected church congregational teacher and leader. It makes no difference. If they are those that like, for example, to sit around and gossip about folks and talk down about folks and put others down, we know that that's not scriptural in accordance with what Jesus would say. That is not a good role model. Just because somebody might be a preacher, an elder, a church leader, that does not make them a good influence in our life. You know, the point really is that we are natural-born imitators. And once we are aware of this fact, we are in a position to appreciate what John's exhortation was to Gaius in verse number 11. And that brings us to our next point. I touched on it really briefly in passing just a moment ago, but I want to investigate this idea a little bit further. And that is we should imitate only the good. Why is it that in our text it finds that we only imitate the good? Well, John explains it like this, very simply. He said, he who does good is of God. That's why you imitate that which is good, because a person that's doing that which is good, that person is of God. As simple as that. You know, sometimes we complicate matters in the scriptures when all we have to do is reduce them to their utter simplicity and look very commonly that even a common person like me can understand. You know why I have to imitate a good person, the one that's doing that which is right? Because those that do right are of God. That's a pretty good reason, isn't it? The one who does good truly and naturally bears evidence that they have been born of God. In 1 John chapter 5 and verse 18, the Bible says, We know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not. But he that is begotten of God keepeth himself, and that wicked one toucheth him not. This is a wonderful instance in our text now of a man named Demetrius. And Demetrius was one whose life bore testimony, living testimony, from all that knew him. I think that's important for us to understand. It makes no difference what a person declares about themselves. The one that they really are is what they do. Your actions will show what exactly it is that you are. Do you know that it's a beautiful thing to tell somebody that you're a Christian? Oh, absolutely. And every time we get a chance, we want to tell somebody we're a Christian. But I'll tell you this. If the only way people know you are a Christian is when you tell them there's something wrong with your life. A person should be able to look at us and see that we're different. They should be able to say something in front of us in the world that's off color and be embarrassed because they did so in our presence. They should, if they would slip and say something that's vulgar, that a Christian does not appreciate, they should know by our manner of life, by the way that we live, by the choices we make, and the way that we talk, walk, and act among our peers, they should know you're a Christian and it was inappropriate for me to do that. I'm sorry. Oh, it's a wonderful thing to say you're a Christian, but it's even better 
that your life bears living testimony because that's what you are. And 3 John verse 12 about Demetrius says, Demetrius hath good report of all men and of the truth itself. Yea, and we also bear record, and ye know that our record is true. Well, let's go to the flip side of that now and talk about the other way. We know that that which is a good person, it will bear a witness or it will bear a record in his life. His life will be a living testimony, not his verbiage. The things that he does, everybody's going to know about old Demetrius. They're going to know that. I'm going to tell you this right now. I know people that are members of the body of Christ that are in this congregation that their lives are just like that. They never have to go out and say that they're a Christian. Their deeds follow them. Their actions follow them. What a wonderful thing. You know, some of the greatest examples that I've seen among Christians were among men and women that never stood in this position and proclaimed the truth publicly. Oh, but their life, what a sermon that it was. What a sermon their life was. What about on the other side, though? Why is it that we need to stay away from the one that is evil? We don't want to imitate evil, for the Bible says this of that. He who does evil, John said, hath not seen God. The one who consistently engages in evil demonstrates that he or she has not seen God and is in fact a child of the devil. You know, don't think that I am oversimplifying this. I'm really not. That's exactly what the Bible says. If you're doing right, you're of God. If you're not doing of right, you're of the devil. It's as simple as that. You are led by one of two things. One of two ways. One which is good and one that is evil. Let me clarify this point, though. The Bible says all have sinned and have come short of the glory of God. That is a fact. The Bible also says that if a man would say that he has no sin, he is a liar and the truth is not in him. So this does not mean sinless perfection. This is talking about, for sake of a, a better term, as the world would say in the common adage, if you're walking to one drummer that's leading you to evil, then you are of the devil. But if you are guided by what the Word of God says, and you are of God, and you stumble, that is different than a person that is seeking after that which is evil. You know, it is impossible for you and I, I believe this with all my heart, it's impossible for you and I to live our life and not sin. We can go through every day and focus on not doing that which is wrong. But we can leave something undone that should have been done and be guilty of omission. You see the point? The point is, as Christians, and this is the beauty of it, the Christian gets to go and have a God that hears him or her and asks forgiveness, and the blood of Jesus washes that sin away, just like it was the day that they obeyed the gospel and they were baptized for the remission of sins. So I'm not talking about a person that makes a mistake. I'm not talking about a person that stubs their toes spiritually, as it were. I'm talking about those, and we know who they are, that are following after worldly things. 
The one who consistently engages in evil demonstrates that he or she has not seen God and that they are a child of the devil. In 1 John chapter 3 and verse 6, the Bible says, Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. And in verse number 10 of, John, of 1 John the third chapter, it says, In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. Let me just ask you this. We're talking about role models tonight. Who's a better role model? Who would be a better influence in our life? Who would be a better person to choose to imitate? The one that bears witness that they have come to know God and are living the Christian life? Or the one whose life demonstrates that despite their claims to the contrary, they have yet come to know God? You know, there's another reason to imitate only the good. And that is because you become like those that you imitate. That might sound a little bit redundant, but listen, it needs to be stressed. The reason that you don't imitate evil and you only imitate the good is when you are imitating, you are becoming just like the one that is your model. Why do I make that point? Because you know how many times we've heard somebody say, but I'm not like them, Bo. I'm not really like them. I might dress like them. I might spend time with them. I might frequent the places that they frequent. I might speak like them and even act like them, but I am not like them. I am different. No, sir. If you are looking like them, if you are imitating them, if you are speaking like them, dressing like them, acting like them, and so on, you are just like them. So what's a better role model? A better role model is the one that is seeking that which is good. You know, children become like their parents, teenagers like their peers and idols, and Christians like those that they hold in high regard. And as we conclude that point, if we imitate the good, we become good. If we imitate the evil, then it is evil that we become. My point simply is this, brethren, we must be selective of whom we imitate. Let me give you now some examples of what the Bible teaches that is a pattern or certain ideas that we can imitate. Who is it that we should imitate? Who is the very best ones that we can find in all of our life that we want a foolproof answer? We want the very best role model. We want the very best one that we can follow. Number one, by far the absolute number one best one that we can imitate is that of God and Jesus Christ. Jesus encouraged us to do so in showing kindness to our enemies. In the great sermon on the mount in Matthew chapter 5 beginning there in verse 43, hear the words of Jesus. He said, "You have heard that it hath been said, thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies." Bless them that curse you, and do good to them that hate you. 
and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his son to rise on the devil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and the unjust. But notice what Jesus says. If you love them which love you, what reward have you? Do not even the publicans the same? And if you salute your brethren only, what do you more than others? Don't even the publicans do the same? Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Now listen, let's not misunderstand and think that Jesus was saying that we can be perfect by way of sinless perfection as the Almighty God that's omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, the Almighty God that breathed into existence through the Holy Spirit, the Word of God that you and I can read, that it is so impossible for God to sin, He cannot lie, and all of those horrible things that we see in the world is not of God at all. Jesus wasn't saying that we can be perfect like that, but the word perfect that Jesus refers to is a Greek word, teleos, which means completeness. Now, look at the context of this Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 43 through 48. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about the way that you treat one another. He's talking about how you feel about another. Jesus spoke to a group of people, and they understood what he said. He said, I know that you've heard it said. You love those that are good to you. You love your brethren. You love those that love you, but those that hate you, you hate them too. Then he goes in to say, if all you do is love your brethren, and by the way, look at it this way. All of you that are in this room that are my brethren, I dearly love. That is easy to do. And by the way, even if we disagree about something, it never ever changes the fact that we love each other. It should never ever do that. We should always love one another regardless if we have a disagreement. That's easy to do. It really is. You know what's hard? Loving your enemy. Now that is hard. You know what's hard to figure? You know what's hard to do? Is to have the love. We don't have to love what they do. But have love for the souls of our enemies in other countries that stand opposed to Christian values. That is hard to do. But make no mistake, when Jesus hung on that cross, he died for their sins too. That's right. You know those ones that oppose us in other religions and stand so violently against us? Listen and even fly airplanes into our large buildings. Let me just say this. Is all that wrong? Absolutely. Will they stand before their maker? Yes, they will. But let me just tell you this. Jesus died for their sins too. We can't hate them. We don't love what they do. Absolutely not. We absolutely despise what they do. But we love their soul. You know what Jesus said? If all you do is love your brethren, big deal. Publicans do that. You know who they were? They were the tax collectors. They were looked down upon uh, among society. Horrible people. He said the publicans do that. If you love those that love you, no big deal, because the publicans do that too. But be ye therefore complete, 
even as your Father which is in heaven is complete. You know, God loved the world so very much when he sent Jesus to die on the cross. He did so when man was but a miserable offender and unworthy in every way. When man was in opposition to the teachings of God, when man had turned his back on God and hated God, that's when God sent his son to die for their sins. So are we getting the picture? We can imitate that. Paul also instructed those Ephesians to walk in love. In Ephesians chapter 5 and verses 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul said, Be ye therefore followers of God, as dear children, and walk in love, as Christ hath loved us and hath given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. What better example do we have than that of God and Jesus Christ himself? Indeed, the very titles that we wear imply such imitation. For the Bible says that Christians are those that are children of God. What do children do? They imitate their parents. What does the child of God do? He imitates God. He imitates God. And he does so by following what God has said. There's another thing that we're called in the scriptures. We are disciples. Disciples of Jesus Christ. We're getting the picture here too, aren't we? A disciple is a follower and a learner. A disciple is one who's going to follow the one whom they are a disciple of. If we're disciples of Jesus, we are following him and we are imitating him. I think sometimes we lower the standard. We want to be like the weak brother over there and compare ourselves with that person. The one that's having difficulties and falling, like Bob talked about this morning, about how sad it is, where there are people that are struggling day by day. Their priorities aren't what it ought to be. They haven't fixed their minds and their eyes on Jesus, and they haven't set forth for the prize. What happens? Toss to and fro. Here comes a stumbling block. What do they do? They fall down. Always struggling in their life. You see, a disciple of Jesus is one who is looking at Jesus. Hebrews 12, 2 says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. We look to Jesus. We follow Jesus. We obey Jesus. We imitate him. Secondly, we can imitate New Testament examples as well. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 1, the Apostle Paul said that we are followers of those who are following or imitating Jesus Christ. Paul said, be ye followers of me, even as I am also of Christ. Listen, it is not wrong to follow the example of a man so long as spiritually he was one that is following Jesus. If a person is following Jesus, and I've been so thankful in my life to have those examples in the body of Christ. When I was a young man, I was able to look upon a man and follow a man that I respected. Here we go right here. Just like the New Testament examples, they were following Christ, so I followed them as they did so. But what if that person was taking side tours, detours, 
was not following Jesus, did not have their eyes fixed on the prize, was not running the race, was being distracted, I would follow him into some of those pitfalls too. Here's the point. If they're following Christ, we truly can follow or imitate them. Paul said, as I am imitating or following Christ, you follow me. The New Testament is filled with many good examples for Christians today. You know about married couples? I'll tell you something. Married couples can look to the Word of God and see that in all the problems that we might have as a married couple, they're fixed right here. They really are. A lot of it has to do with our behavior. Now, I'm not saying that I've always followed the pattern. I'm quite certain there'd be one that might tell you differently. But I will tell you this. The plan and the pattern is perfect. It is perfect. It is flawless. It really is. Everything in God's Word is flawless. You know what's wrong with the rules in the Bible? Only to the extent that we don't follow. That's it. But the rule's perfect. If we would go back to the standard, we do that about other things, let's do that about marriage. Let's do that about the marriage relationship. Let's do this. Let's find that the Apostle Paul says that I am to love my wife in the same form or fashion as Jesus loved the church. What did he do? He died for her. Pretty good leadership, isn't it? That's some leadership that demands some respect. No, commands some respect. Really does. When the Bible says that a woman is to love her husband, and reverence him. Oh, she's not going to take shots at him. No, she's going to have respect for him and follow him as the head of the house. Listen, as he is following Christ. Sadly, though, not all husbands fit that bill. Not all wives fit that bill either. But the pattern is perfect. Notice Married couples can look to some examples. Time will not permit me to go very far, but I'll go a little bit. Of Priscilla and Aquila in Romans, the, uh, the 16th chapter there, we find that the Bible says, Paul said, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my helpers in, G in Christ Jesus, who for my life laid down their own necks, unto whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. What did they do? They were side by side. I'm going to tell you something. There is nothing that a relationship can't go through when they're on the same page and they're side by side and they're hand in hand working together with God first in their life. I'm going to tell you, there's nothing in the world that they can't get through. And that's a fact. That's a fact. You know that old adage where people say that what doesn't destroy you will make you stronger? What doesn't destroy you will bring you closer together. You know, truer words were never said. When the child of God is living the Christian life with a Christian mate, and they're striving together for the cause of Christ, I'm going to tell you something. There's nothing more beautiful than that. There's no relationship greater. And there's no example among others that's greater than that. Oh, yes, they risked their own necks. They laid their own lives down. They were working together side by side to further the cause 
of Christ. Good example for married couples. What about those that have been blessed with things? Oh, now we're getting into an area that's kind of familiar to us. Because I'll tell you something, we've all got things. We might think we're poor, but I'm going to tell you something. Look in other places and you're going to see we are rich. We really are. So what do you do when you're blessed with things? What happens to a lot of people? They're tempted and all of a sudden their values and their desires are diverted and they start losing perspective. Why do you suppose it is that some of these countries where people are so poverty stricken, you go preach a sermon, a little old sermon in, uh, in another country in the Philippines, you preach a sermon on a little parable that Jesus preached and offer the invitation and here come 20. Out of emotion? No. No, they understand. They understand there's something greater. A mansion in heaven? I'm living in a hut. I don't even have concrete on my floor. Heaven? A mansion? Gold? I'm going. Where do I go? How do I do that? What happens when you get a lot of things, though? Kind of gets in the way, doesn't it? Well, Philemon and Gaius were examples of this. In Philemon chapter 1, verses, beginning in verse 1, Paul said, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and Timothy, our brother, unto Philemon, our dearly beloved, and fellow laborer, and to our beloved Aphia and Archippus, our fellow soldier. And to the church in thy house, grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God, making mention of thee always in my prayers, hearing of thy love and faith, which thou hast toward the Lord Jesus, and toward all saints, that the communication of thy faith may become effectual by the acknowledging of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. For we have great joy and consolation in thy love, because the bowels of the saints are refreshed by thee, brother. Third John, beginning in verse 5. Another example. Beloved, thou doest faithfully. Whatsoever thou doest to the brethren and to strangers, which have borne witness of thy charity before the church, whom if thou wilt bring forward on their journey after a godly sort, thou shalt do well, because that for his name's sake, they went forth, taking nothing of the Gentiles. We therefore ought to receive such that we might be fellow helpers to the truth. What about an example of a woman? You know, there's an example in the New Testament about a woman that had such an example because of the way that she lived, the things that she did when she died. There were those that were there, those widows, and they were weeping, and they were holding on to the garments that she made. Remember her? Remember Tabitha? which was also named Dorcas. You remember before she was raised from the dead, and then when she did, we find that she's described in the book of Acts as a woman that was a disciple. Listen, let's never downplay the importance of women in the body of Christ. Sometimes people think that because a woman has a role that's different in the body of Christ, that she's not as important as a man. That is not true. And a woman can be a tremendous example. She was known, the Bible says, for her good works and alms deeds, which she did. Oh, I'd like to talk longer. I'm running out of time. I'll wrap it up quickly. Young men, look to Timothy. In Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 19, it says, But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy shortly unto you, that I also may be of good comfort when I know your state, for I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state. 
For all seek their own, not the things which are of Jesus Christ. But notice, but ye know the proof of him that as a son which the father with with the father he has served me in the gospel. Many, 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 many others. Many others we can read about and study about. But I'll tell you something, be very careful. Be careful about the influences that we have in our life that are even among God's people. We need to understand that Paul encouraged his fellow Christians to imitate those that are providing a similar pattern. Yes, that's right. Oh, follow those and imitate those that are of a similar pattern, not those that are children of the devil. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 17, Paul said, Brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which, which walk so as ye have us for an example. We must be very careful, because not all who profess to be Christians behave themselves like they should. Philippians chapter 3, verses 18 and 19, Paul says, For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is their shame, who mind earthly things. I'll tell you something. If we have influences in our life, even if they are Christians or profess to be, don't be influenced negatively by them. You make an about face and you turn from that. You straighten your brother or your sister out along that line. And if you're not strong enough to do so, get somebody with you that can. If that can't happen, you stay away. Don't allow the behavior of someone that decides that they don't want to live right alter your course and direct your path where it ought not to go. In conclusion... I want to tell you about the words or read you the words of the inspired writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 6 and verses 11 and 12 as I close with this passage of scripture. It says, and we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto when? Until the end. That you be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Who do you imitate? I want to imitate the one that's living in such a way that they're going to inherit the promises. I want to, I want to follow that one. I want to imitate that one. I don't want to imitate like the one Bob talked about that keeps stumbling and falling. Now listen, I'm not putting that fellow down. In fact, I also like what Bob said. We have to help them and encourage them. And I do believe when those fall, we pick them up and keep right on going. Yes. But we don't want to follow them to their destruction. We want to be imitators of those that are going to receive the prize. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us 
We would love for you to be our honored guest.